Hello, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. On today's show, I speak with documentary filmmaker Paul Kemp on his new film, Nike's Big Bet. That's coming up on Endeavors. I've covered a lot of documentaries during this show, and occasionally I will do sports. You know, back when I was on community radio, I would do, you know, memoirs by athletes, largely baseball players, people like, you know, Dirk Hayhurst or Rick Ankiel, also interviewed George LaRock, Theron Fleury. You know, and I've done sports movies. I did a hockey movie uh, a couple years back called Goalie. Um, I've done the occasional sports documentary. But I've, I haven't really done anything about athletics, track and field, or anything about scandals uh, within that field, which, you know with the Olympics and everything, has, has come up a few times uh, in the last few years or so. And uh, there is a new documentary um, coming out on EOD and CBC called Nike's Big Bet. And it follows the story of a, a man I was previously unfamiliar with, but he is uh, Alberto Salazar, and he is considered one of the foremost track coaches in the world. That was until he got suspended and then permanently banned um, from the International Federation, allegedly for being an abusive coach. Now, this wasn't a Larry Nasser type of deal that had a lot of sexual misconduct. Um, it was more that he was, ver you know, verbally abusive, verbally tough, emotionally abusive. Uh, several college athletes, female runners, have gone on the record with their story. And filmmaker Paul Kemp, who himself was a college track star, decided to um, investigate further. Uh, Paul has been working as a documentary filmmaker, writer, producer, for the last two decades. Uh, he, he did a film last, a couple years ago called uh, The Rise of Jordan Peterson. He's worked on Going Native, uh, a documentary called Transformer, How DJ Culture Shook the World. Uh, he's worked on Doc Zone, a series on Israel and Palestine, uh, Where Cool Came From, as well as many others. His latest film is, of course, as I mentioned, Nike's Big Bet. This is my conversation with Paul Kemp. Paul Camp, hello. We're just doing audio. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, you're all good. We're just doing audio, or is it video too? I just uh, need to know. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the, I I just record the audio, so. Oh, okay. Yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Paul Camp, uh, how's it going today? How are things? I am good. I'm just out traveling, filming my next project. But uh, thanks for interest in Nike's big bet. 
Yeah, it, it, it seems is especially in, in the documentary world that you just you you finish one and you go right on to the next one. You know, how 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 do you find sort of having one in post and talking about it while simultaneously being in pre-production for another one? Well, to be honest, on this show, I've had to do five different edits around the world. So this released at the Hot Dogs Festival in Toronto in May of 2021. And then since then, I've had to do yeah four more edits from that. So I don't really want to see the film again. I've, <laughs> I've watched it a hundred times. So this one, uh, I love talking about it because I love the subject, but yeah, I've been working on a couple of new projects and I've also worked on a TV series. So uh, this show was shot mainly in 2020 during COVID, which made it interesting and kept me busy. Um, so I'm happy and grateful that I got the opportunity to actually do a, a really high level project in the middle of that. And even it even impacted the film a bit because I it dictated where I could go to actually do some of the shooting and the filming of uh, the scenes. And so that was, that was a challenge. So yeah, like I'm, I'm happy to be uh, busy, but uh, hopefully I can keep it going. <laughs> you know, you, you mentioned you, you, you did it during COVID, you know, I've, I've worked on, on film projects, narrative projects during COVID and, you know, all obviously always making a film is challenging, but it strikes me that in a way, documentaries might be slightly easier to do during COVID than features because generally you have smaller crews anyway, and you can always do stuff like this where you do the interviews virtually. Um, how, how did you find the, the filmmaking process during COVID as opposed to before and after? Well, about half of it was actually filmed just the week before uh COVID like uh, it was March 10th or 11th or whatever when Toronto like I live in Toronto uh it basically started to shut down around the 11th and I finished filming I guess February 25th to March 3rd uh, I was in Atlanta at the U.S. Olympic trials uh for the marathon and they were getting ready ready for Tokyo not knowing that Tokyo was going to get moved a year so I was at the trials and a lot of the a lot, a significant number of the characters in the film about I think seven characters in the film were actually there. And there were some other people that didn't make the cut. I interviewed quite a few people down there. So I had that in the can. And then when we went into lockdown, I was able to at least look at the footage and pay, uh, play around. So I had a normal crew up until then. But then as the summer went on, I was like, is this going to happen? Like, are we ever going to travel? And they opened up a little window, I don't know if you remember, uh, where the States, they hadn't stopped us from getting on a plane and going to the States. And I I found out a few of the American, uh, sorry, my friends were doing um, other films down in the States. And I just said, can you just go? And so I just went to Pearson and I hired crews in the States. So I didn't bring a Canadian crew because of the quarantines that I would have had to pay for them to sit in their house for 14 days when they got back. For me, I was the director, writer and producer, so it didn't make a big difference. Um, so I just picked up crews in the States. It, it cost me a little bit more, but there's companies that actually create contract there's contractors you can pick up so when i was in cedar city utah for instance there was a guy from uh from las vegas him and another guy came up and we did all covid friendly stuff we shot outside everything was good and then we i i picked up a, a vice a guy who works for vice um and he traveled with me for seven states i think so seven flights it was it was just him and i literally i've never had a smaller crew he did audio video. I was doing a lot of the audio. He was doing the video. <laughs> it was like, it was crazy. I've never, uh, I've never been that, sm that small of a crew, but it turned out like it, I don't know. It's kind of weird. Like uh, you can actually, when you're, when you're focused, I got it done in 14 days, that next uh, bit in 14 days came back and then I was in post writing it. I, you know, I was able to get all the transcripts together and then my editors were free. And so it didn't change that much. Actually, once I got the footage, it was getting the footage was the hard part. And I had to make choices. Like I couldn't go to Atlanta. And when I was traveling, I had to like, look at, was there COVID restrictions in every state? So if I landed in one state, like if I landed in, uh, in Colorado from Canada, I would have had to have gone into 14 days but if I because I went to Cedar City Utah 
I drove over the border. Then I caught a flight from Colorado to Oregon. There was no COVID restrictions. <laughs> so right. you know, they went from Oregon to New York and there was no COVID restriction. Like, so I mapped the whole thing out that way. It was a, it was a weird process. <laughs> so, you know, you, you mentioned you initially premiered the film back in, in Hot Docs in May. And considering, you know, you had basically just finished finished filming by then that's a pretty quick turnaround um for any film but particularly for uh, a a documentary how how were you able to to get uh the editing done so so quickly and you know because in a documentary you 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 have to cut a lot of stuff out um how, how easy for you were those decisions to make it was it was really that was the hardest part by far was looking at the schedule and knowing that the hot dogs deadline was it's not just getting in the festival the festival is may 1st or whatever but to get into the festival you have to get the your film in by january 10th so do the math like i got home uh, late october and <laughs> i had to get a rough cut in so I talked to these guys and I, I just went to two weeks. I locked myself in a room. Part of quarantine, I was in a room too, creating the structure. I knew what the structure was. I knew what the film was. And I, I, I'm known, in, I guess, in the industry as a pretty fast writer and editor. Um, and I also, when you're directing and writing, like I, I, don't, I don't fuss around that much. Like I know a lot of people, filmmakers, like slave over every scene. And I was like, no, I know what this is going to feel like and I so I hired the right editing team and uh I sent them the, the little bits of the edits and as I was writing the next section they were working already on the opening they were opening like I did some of the scenes that were very late in the show I actually did first the one the part about the shoes uh I did that because I knew what that story was it was very simple to me so they did that that was already in the can so we were doing it in chunks and then basically once I looked at all the chunks that had been edited, I went, oh, okay, this, this order is making sense. Got it down to about two hours, 30 minutes, and then not locked an hour off that. That's where it gets hard is like when you're sitting there looking at it, going, okay, is this making sense? Is the audience going to be enjoying themselves? <laughs> is the tension, the conflict coming in uh, together? And yeah, it, it took a long time. It was, it was hard. Like, I'm not saying it was easy. It was, it was stressful. Even over Christmas, I remember working like I, I was working like a donkey over Christmas. Like it was crazy. Well, especially when you have to do four different edits, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that came that wasn't as hard because the edits came out of the final eighty-three minute version, the feature doc, which is it's sold in eighty-two countries now. So um, it's it's on Peacock in the states, Sky in the UK, all the big national broadcasters. It's on National Geographic in uh, Holland. But Canada wanted a 44 minute version, not a 73, uh, 83. So I had, that was a hard cut. Uh, and two of the broadcasters wanted narration. And so the show, did, if you watch the original, there's no narration. It's a, it flows from, and then all of a sudden you're cutting all this out and then you're having to put a narrative in. So I had to go in and recut, put my narration, but the sequences were the same. Like the chunks were the same. So like, it was like, I know this is an important story about Mary King. What, how do I frame that up? So we tighten up the story. Um, and I also was able on the, actually the last cut to address some of the criticisms I had on the first cut. Like people were bitching at me about a couple of scenes. I, I got a lot of flack about uh, the Mary King scene. And so I, I just wrote, when I wrote the new narration, it, I could address that. And I just did a slight line change and it just like, and all of a sudden I didn't take a lot of heat. <laughs> so, Cause sometimes on the first cut, you don't like you're, you're sending it out. And I didn't have a lot of broadcasters. Like when you have the good thing about having three broadcasters is that no, no one is too on your back about what the cut's going to look like. But if you have, but if you have, the bad thing is, is that no one's on your back. And so you're editing and you're, you're hoping that it's, you're, you're showing friends or you're showing colleagues and you're thinking, okay, is this really holding together? Sometimes network executives are really good for making a film better. Um, Cause they, they can get on you and ask hard questions and go, I didn't understand this. Do you jump from here to here um, at, at the rough cut stage? Right. Um, so those were, I find sometimes those are valuable lessons that you can learn so yeah it was it was it was fun though uh and i'm happy it got done in the in the versioning yes it was a bit tiring during the summer just 
another version, but I, I wanted CBC. It's now, you know, on nationally on gem and on CBC. I think it's going to, they're going to replay it a few times actually on CBC and on news world. So people can look for it there, but on gem, you just can watch it any day. It's, it's streaming right now. So, uh, and I think everyone has gem as long as you have a computer, you have gem in Canada. So. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, the subject of the film is the Nike Oregon project. And, you know, we hear a lot about, you know, we've heard about a lot of different doping scandals and, you know, whether it's Lance Armstrong or Marion Jones or, you know, even the stuff that came out about the gymnastics team and uh, uh, Nancy or um, the, the gymnast from the 80s, Lindsay Krug or whatever her name was. Um, this was this was a story that I was I was unfamiliar with just, you know, which um, why do you why do you think this this particular scandal, if you will, or, or, or this particular particular regime hadn't received as much coverage as some of the other um sporting scandals we, we because heard. they never caught a big athlete they never caught a big fish um alberto salazar every i'm a i'm a former university track athlete i used to, I was on scholarship and i ran nationally and um so i i've been following the sport for 30 years so if you were in the high levels of track and field or even paying attention to American and international uh, running, you knew who Alberto Salazar was. He's a big character in that world. But your average person who doesn't follow the sport isn't going to know who Alberto Salazar. They might have, if you're old enough, you might have remembered that he had the world record in the marathon uh, from the 80s. I know you're, well, you look younger than me. So I imagine you don't remember wild world of sports on the afternoons. And I remember Salazar, I was a kid watching Salazar break the world record. I couldn't believe it. I was, I think I was 10 years old at the time. And uh, so it, it was amazing. So he's, he is famous in certain quarters and actually in Europe, uh, people knew who he was weirdly enough. Um, a lot of the television networks all said, yeah, well, we, of course we know who Salazar is. And I was like, really? Um, but yeah, back to your point, it, it, it was um, interesting that he, he, this hits and there was just a thunderous boom inside of track, but outside of it, and it hit the newspapers and stuff, but it, I don't think your average hockey fan or baseball fan would know what happened. Um, and here's the other thing. He coached a guy like the most famous Olympian uh, in track and field for the last, well, other than Usain Bolt was Mo Farah. He was his coach. So people will remember Mo Farah, but Mo Farah never got a bad drug test. I mean, there was some suspicions about the guy, but he is, um, Salazar coached so many national champions, so many world champions, so many uh, junior champions. It is incredible. His stable of athletes is just incredible. And, but this is what I think is so interesting about the sport. He gets banned for uh, allegedly breaking doping rules and none of his athletes have ever been caught doping. Like, how does that happen? And so that was the question of the film. I was like, how is this, like, this doesn't make sense to me. I, I, I kept saying that. And then, so that was the, that was the impetus for going forward. Now he was a sketchy, he did some sketchy things. And I think the film does a good job of showing what he does. Like, I mean, you're not allowed like L-carnitine injections. Um, I didn't, in the longer edit of the film, I really go into this, but he, L-carnitine is just an amino acid that we get out of meat. Like if you have a hamburger, you have amino, you have L-carnitine in it. But if you synthesize that, put it in water and put it into your veins, there was some theory that this will help your endurance. He thought that this was helping. So he was testing it on his athletes. But the, so he goes to the, he goes to the authorities and says, I'm doing this. This is exactly what I'm doing. And they tell him you cannot do more than 50 milliliters of this solution in six hours. So he's giving 49 milliliters. <laughs> he's doing this thing. He's putting an IV drip into his athletes to see if this thing's going to work. Now, I don't know, like it's not illegal, but as a former track athlete, you're kind of like, I don't know if I want my coach putting me up to an IV just like numerous times a week to figure out does this additive get into my bloodstream and help me run just a little bit quicker. But that's what he, the attention to detail, he wanted his athletes to get that one second over 5,000 meters. 
And that one second is the difference between gold medal and silver or fourth, the dreaded fourth. <laughs> you, know, you don't want fourth, you don't get the credit. And, but if you come first, you know, the millions of dollars can roll in, right? So, yeah. you know, it's interesting because a lot of the times we hear when athletes are accused, you know, caught doping, like especially in baseball, which I follow closely, you know, everyone says, oh, there was an extraordinary pressure to perform and you know it, that's that's why i did it is yeah. is this is is the same true for coaches that the the coaches like like salazar will will do these things because there's um there's an extraordinary ability to have their athletes produce and and, and there's funding goals and, and and all that as well yeah oh yeah all that stuff i mean nike built this project in 2001 with the intention of giving them millions of dollars in uh, contracts to the athletes to sign the best athletes. Of course, the, some of the athletes in the program weren't making a ton of money. Uh, there was some national level runners that were good that he was hoping he could take to the Olympics or higher. And then there was international athletes and Nike, you know, I've heard that he's uh, Mo Farah has made between five and $10 million contracts for one year. I mean, he's the biggest, he went sportsman of the year twice in Britain. I mean, he's a serious deal over in Europe. Um, so yeah. And so yes, there's the pressure of that, but I mean, the athletes are also coming to started to come to him too. I mean, here are these athletes that are very good national level, maybe champions in the United States, but they know that they're only eighth in the world. How do they go to get a medal to get on that podium? Because that podium spot means hundreds of thousands of dollars over many years in contracts for them. I mean, we're, we're not talking baseball contracts here for track. Track does not pay the same way, except for, you know, Bolt and uh, DeGrasse. I've heard Andre DeGrasse is making just extraordinary amounts of money now. But um, I mean, he's an Olympic champion. He's well known. He's a national, you know. So there's those kind of people yes so the answer is yes nike and the coach were like that the athletes wanted that they wanted to eke out those little benefits but at the same time salazar is also a bit he's obsessed he doesn't matter which athlete he has he wants them to be the best and that's why he was so successful with so many of them now he pushed it too far with some of them and some of them lost their minds and left the program and left in disillusionment and Went to the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency and charged them with being an abusive coach. And like, I mean, that's the bottom line is like he was he was riding that fine line. And it's interesting because most people I talked to really, really love the guy. Like um, his, his athletes thought he meant the best for them. Um, but he just sometimes got blurred by what the best was. We, you know, when when you were making this film and sort of delving into that whole world and and I guess Sal, Salazar's methods, did you learn anything about I guess what what can be perceived as abuse to people? Because obviously, you know, what Salazar did what wasn't the same thing as Larry Nasser, let's say, right? But 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 there is something to be said for the mental abuse that can come with a coach pushing somebody too hard well most most of his like i should say this most of his athletes have come to his support um but the ones that have been vocal um have hit the, the press and that would be kara goucher who was a former world champion in in the 10k she you know was a medalist at the new york city marathon she's an incredibly great athlete and she was a cover girl like for them. She was on every magazine in America. She was a real big deal. Like she's been on Runner's World dozens of times. Like she's and because she's a gorgeous woman and great athlete, tough as nails. Um, and when she started to see things she didn't like, her she acted like Salazar was like basically they were like father and daughter for five years. She even says that in the film, she talks about that. And then they don't see each other anymore because she, you know, but basically I, I think her relationship with him might've been actually almost too close. Like she was married. I don't think her husband liked Salazar at all. 
that might be that's that's been rumors in the background like that that happened and then all of a sudden she starts seeing like these iv drips and asthma medications and all these sort of things and going oh, i don't like this and so she goes public and then she thinks she keeps saying that there's something bigger I said, I interviewed her for almost two hours. And I said, well, is there anything more? Because everything you've said is on the, it's sketch, some of it's sketchy, but it seems on this side of le- uh, of legal, not illegal. And um, so that's that's the one case. And then the other case was Mary Kane, of course, was the world junior champion. She held all sorts of records. She was the America America's number one runner at age 50. Her parents sent her out to this club. I got, I deal with this in the film. Um, She had two or three great years there. And then she started not running well. um, And some people, Salazar supposedly felt like her body weight was too high. Um, But he said this to every athlete, men and women. Now it's probably not the best thing to do to an 18 year old girl um, who's suffering, you know, with body image issues to berate her after a track race that she's got to lose some weight to run faster. Um, and that's allegedly what happened. He does, he claims that didn't, a lot of people say it did. Um, so yeah, like that's the abusive behavior. But when we're talking about like Larry Nassar, there's no indication of him being sexual, like sexually abusive, even though that uh, safe sport in the States has said that he's been um, banned from national level meets for life. Now, this has all come out just in the last couple of months for abusive and sexual mis- misbehavior and misconduct, I think of the word. And I was like, what? Like, who, who, like, where's the line of like, what word are we using when we're saying sexual misconduct? So I contact Safe Sport. They won't release anything. They don't tell you what the allegations are. So he's been called like some sort of sexual misconduct coach, which I have not, I, even his female athletes have said he hasn't done it. Now, was he abusive? Was he too tough on them? That's a different thing. I mean, I think anyone who's been in sports has had that coach that has been pushing too far. Um, I certainly have, I had one or two, you know, in track and well, in basketball was, I I played basketball and baseball when I was a kid. And most of the time I had great coaching experience, but you had occasionally you had like very intense hockey always had intense guy. Like I almost thought half the hockey coaches should have been fired. Like when I was a kid, <laughs> I played like fairly high level hockey. <laughs> it's like, Oh my God, these guys are hard card. Um, but so we've all gone through that. We've seen it and they're trying to root that out in other sports, right? They're trying to make coaches have to go th- and parents have to go through these programs. My son had to go, I had to go through a program to learn about your behavior at practice in the game. Um, Salazar probably should have done that before he started coaching women. He's got a male's mentality of how to coach. And you, I know there's a difference between, I've been on clubs before, many track clubs over my years. And the way you coach women and the way you coach men is a little bit different. You, you can't speak to women the same way in many cases. And I'm not trying to I'll probably get canceled for saying it, but, uh, you know, I just don't think, I just don't think that, um, you know, I think some women can take the way guys are talked to. Like we used to get yelled at a little bit and we just go, okay, we just run harder. If you, if you do that to certain females, I've seen that they just crumble. It is, it doesn't work that way. You, you coach them. They're tough as nails, but you have to coach them differently. Talk to them differently. You don't, it's not like like, like that. And, you know, I don't want to stereotype constantly, but I don't think Mary Keane was that athlete. I don't think the coach should have, um, I don't, he wasn't the right coach for her. I think she, she had some really good successes with him, but probably shouldn't have joined the club at age 15. You know, it was crazy. So what, what is, what is, how does that speak to, do you think the, the overall larger institutionalization of everything, you know, because we see a lot of these institutions have deep seated, you know, whether it was the USA gymnastics or, you know, MLB, these big organizations that sort of allow these problems to fester. But then on the other side, you have, you know, WADA or the anti-doping committee or these who have become very strict in, in their policies now, almost too much to the other way. And they're not transparent about why these, you know, 
why or, or, or how this happened. Like you look at Castor Simonia, for example. Um, what, what, what do you make of the, the institutionalization of everything? Well, I think the, like Castor Semenya, I think is how you'd say it, but she's, she's um, a different case. Like that's a very, very interesting case about X, uh, XY chromosomes and it's called DSD for people who don't know. It's considered intersex. It means that you have, you have a genitalia that looks like a female, but you still have uh, just non-distended uh, testicles. I mean, how they find that out, I'm not sure, but <laughs> it was being such an issue in some events. And it is this year, like uh, right now, that this is another story. Um, the two fastest, the, fa the fastest 200 meter, she got the silver at the Olympics. Uh, she's 18 year old from Namibia. She's broken every junior record. She broke uh, Allison Felix's record. She just destroyed them. She's 18 years old and that's the under 20 records. So that they needed to step in. I think there needed to be set rules about testosterone uh, naturally or not in your body. And I think that that was probably the right move. Um, and I also think WADA and USADA, which are the doping agencies, I think they're, they're pretty good now. Um, I think they, they did go a little crazy, but they're trying to work out the kinks. Like um, there are some, you know, Shikari Richardson got banned from the Olympics for smoking weed after, you know, so they're going to probably deal with those issues, but you always have to have a case before you change the rules. Um, but yeah, it is a bit institutionalized. I think the safe sport thing um, is the one that's been the weirdest, like all of a sudden in the last two years, it's all about making sure everybody on the team has a very happy relationship with the coach and that there's no, possibility of sexual misconduct and and but like look over the years they're trying to address something that's real there's been coaching the coach athlete relationship has been weird and there's been i could name 10 athletes in my career in the last 30 years of running where i know an inappropriate power dynamic had happened between a coach and an athlete and but have we gone too far where you know i've heard stories of athletes who are 27 like coaches 27 and an athlete just finished university at age 24 and they dated and then the guy gets charged and kicked out of the sport like no i don't like okay there's there's human dynamics here right on and just because somebody makes a complaint i think there has to be i think there has to be transparency of what it is and in salazar's case on the safe sport there's no transparency. you don't know what the charge was we don't know what happened he was just told he was banned and I mean, I guess he sees the report. I don't know. It's not clear. But um, but to your other point about the transparency, I do think the USAD, like the, the international doping agencies are very, like once they release the report, those reports are very, very detailed. Like they're 80 pages long. You can read everything that was said. You can see what was said. So you, you, it's sort of a pain in the butt to go through them, but they're not, uh, I don't, think that they're not transparent i think how long they take to do them and what they're doing and like there's sometimes rumors like salazar was under investigation for six years six years before that came out he got first investigated in 2013 and he gets banned in 2019 like okay well what happened that's what i don't understand is why did it take so long for that to bubble up and then they ban him you know that was a weird thing. Like, yeah, I, I agree with you. If that's the transparency you're talking about. Yeah, that was a weird thing. Like, it shouldn't have happened. But. You, you know, this whole thing about him being banned because of sexual misconduct, although misconduct is such a, I think in a lot of ways, a vague word, because I think different people have their own definitions of what misconduct is and, and can be, whether you're the, the victim or, or, or the organization. How much do you think that the Me Too movement, if any, has played a role or, or a factor in what has happened with Salazar? Well, the, the doping allegations, nothing. It, it didn't have an impact because that was already underway. Uh, when did Me Too happen? Like 2018? 2017, 18, yeah. 17, 18. Yeah, so that, that was already underway. He was getting investigated. Those were doping allegations. His safe sport, 100%, because they passed a law, the Congress of the United States passed a law because the universities, it was, it was in conjunction with the universities, they wanted to create a coaching code of conduct 
and do this. Now, probably it's probably going to work out as a good thing if they can work out the kinks and, you know, put the stop sign up before someone gets hit, you know, um, and I think that's, I've heard a coach say, you know, when we get a driver's license, um, when we're 15 and a half or 16, they show you when, I, I don't know if they still do this, but I remember they'd show you the glorious video of what a car crash could be. Well, to the coaches who come in, they don't show you the worst thing that can happen is you're going to lose your career. You're going to lose your job. You're going to be charged with this if you act in these behaviors or you don't understand the boundaries of these things. I think that's something we should do. Yes. Are we listening to every claim? Are people who just had a bad experience throwing people under the bus? Yes, that's happening too. And I think we have to figure out what that is. So yes, the Me Too movement definitely has moved the needle on the safe sport issue. And I know the universities are grappling with this, but there have been some hike, like Megan Brown at, uh, I don't know if you know the Megan Brown story, it was on the front page of the Globe last year. She was the top runner at Guelph in the early 2000s. And the top coach in the country, Dave Scott Thomas has been banned from coaching. Um, he won 35 university titles in track and field and cross country. Like he's an incredible coach, but it's come out that he had an affair, uh, inappropriate affair um, with her when she was a kid, like she was 15 and he was 35 and it was, it was not okay. And that if we had safe sport, if we had those boundaries up back then, would that have solved it? Maybe I hope so. Like, so I think there's a, there's um, a boundary here and, and, um, you know, I just, I, you know, I think sometimes with these social issues, they just, they just go too fast, too fast, too hard sometimes. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, let's put the brakes on here. What are we doing? Uh, Cause there's some roadkill there. Right. Like, and some people get thrown, like they lose their careers or whatever. And I've seen this happen too, but um, we'll see. Like, I, I'm sure you've seen it in other sports as well, but it's, uh, it's happening in I, I, swimming. I think it happened in, and there's a growing situation out in BC right now. Yeah. So these things are happening. So we probably have to, we probably do have to deal with it, but I don't think we should go overboard. <laughs> you know? As, as a, you know, not only as someone who investigated the story, but as a former college athlete yourself, who, you know, is, I guess, familiar with the track industry and, and the inner workings. What are, what do you think are some, methods or, or or some practices that can be maybe included in 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 contracts or, or organizational structures of this nature that can maybe help to mitigate some of these issues going forward well i think i think each coach that's uh, accredited by uh, a provincial institution um should have to go through uh some sort of testing so that they understand the rules of the game, what drug test, what, what's allowable, what's ethical. I think they should have some sort of ethics discussion about these things. And that would also include obviously the issues around sexual and, and uh, abusive behaviors. Um, like bottom line, if you're older, if you're an older male, you shouldn't be having sex with a kid on your team. Like, come on, like everybody should know that. How many times has this happened when this, like, and, and as certain coaches have said to me in investigating this um, was that is the most, you got to realize though, when a coach and an athlete are really on the same wavelength, they, that's one of the most important relationships they'll ever have in their life with each other. And we can't underestimate how human dynamics come into that. So you're with somebody three hours a day, you're, Goals are the same to make the Olympics, to win a medal, to get a contract, to you're all pushing the same. And then the lines sometimes get blurry. I mean, they shouldn't, but they do. And at the, you know, you got to make sure that the one person, the person who's in the power position understands that that's not okay. And that if you're going to do that, recuse yourself from the coaching situation with that person or don't have the affair or don't do some idiotic thing. The abusive thing's a different thing. Like, obviously those things have to be addressed. And um, I think parents and I, I think at the universities, they're doing a fairly good job at this. I remember even in 1987, this is just before Ben Johnson. Or maybe it was right after Ben Johnson. <laughs> I started uh, 
started running track in 87 at university and we had to go to drug testing seminars. Like they would teach us, like they'd say like, you can't do these things. These things are not okay. If you get asked to do this, you cannot do this. Um, and they didn't, they didn't want us like, they were, they were clear about what the rules were. And I, I thought that was good. I, I, I think, and again, I think 98% of all athletes are clean as a whistle. And I think that's because they know that this is a, the idea of fair sport is there. Now, once you, what's interesting about the sport is, you know, a few, a few slow runners will try and take something to get faster, but really it's when you get to the elite level, that's where the pressures are because the difference between fourth and first is millions of dollars and, or making an Olympic team and not making an Olympic team. So those are the people that are most tempted to try to do something or push the boundaries on these things. And again, those people, do you have to retest them at that age? I don't know, but, um, you know, there's been some crazy stories out there. Um, like Shelby Houlihan is one of the top Americans. She got kicked out just before the Olympics. And she said it came from a, a bad pork burrito that had too much nandrolone, which is a steroid in it. It's a crazy story, but that's right. what she said. She goes, I did not take anything. I ate a stuff. Believe what you want on that one. Like, I mean, it was a crazy story, and I don't, I don't quite believe well, her. But. Yeah, and then there was the case of the, of the Canadian rower who uh, was initially banned because, like, for having because her her ex, she had sex with her ex boyfriend, and then he had something in her system, and it transmitted yeah. to her, and so she was banned because of that. And then there was that, and she got reinstated, and I think she ended up winning like silver this year or something. Yeah. You know, so there's, I, yeah, I think you're right. It's. What about, you know, as we're seeing a lot, whether it's with, you know, public people, celebrities, or, or, or even coaches, at, you know, or professors at universities who, who may, you know, put something out on their social media, a, a tweet or, a, or on Facebook that's offensive, you know, maybe, maybe it's homophobic or, or, or maybe it has racial undertones and, and they lose their job. And may, many people say, oh, well, they shouldn't lose their job just based on something they said um what do, what do you think about the certain policies that institutions have around that specific aspect of of you know coaching? well my wife's the track coach at university of toronto and you know it's just understood you just don't behave in those ways and you have to follow the rules of conduct of the university she's in the faculty so but if you know she got fired for some slip of the tongue for saying something that was misconstrued she can go to her faculty associations but some of those contract people like the story of steve boyd he got fired for criticizing uh dave scott thomas who was abusing a girl he says it publicly and the university fires him and it's never been clear they won't they wouldn't talk to me about it at all um why did he get fired and it's like unbelievable like so yeah, like I guess each each organization has to create its own rules. I think that the the like Athletics Ontario, which is the governing track and field body, is doing a good job. They're really racing into this, but they recognize there was a hole in this, and um, you know, a tweet goes out. I mean, I think hopefully we're learning what is acceptable and not. But how do you know sometimes? Like, uh, you know, if you said that all the top 10 fastest runners in the world um and this is a fact are from west african descent is that racist to say that um or not i mean that's like right. you can say like no <laughs> like i don't think that that's a racist comment that's a factual statement about where the people came from i would there's some people that would call me a racist for saying just that that the top 10 fastest people in history came from West African descent. They were descendants of slaves or so they're Jamaicans or Americans or they're from that area of the world. So, I mean, it's like, I don't know. Like, is that okay to say that? I don't know. Like, I, I like I like these discussions, but I don't think that that's something you should be fired for, uh, for stating something like that. But now if you go to your way and start slurring people in front of other people and making people feel uncomfortable and, you know, uh, look, I remember back in the day when there was a lot of, there was a lot of coaches made like inappropriate homosexual jokes when I was a kid. Like I heard that a lot and yeah, like, I mean, it was part of the culture at the time, but it was not appropriate. I, like I knew back in the eighties, you don't do that. 
Like, come on. But why would somebody do that and say, well, I'm not coaching that kid because he's, you know, gay or what, you know what? It's like, really? Like, I heard those sort of things. Like, it's crazy. But I, hopefully we have, like, we've come a long way since then. So uh, I've, I've noticed the societal changes. And, um, but again, like Salazar and, and Nike in that, that situation, there was no talk of that stuff. Um, he, had the, he had an incredible, incredible reputation in, far, in, in that regard. What did you, you know, obviously being in, in the track world for so long, you, you knew who Salazar was and, and you knew of this whole case for many years, but in actually making the film and, and talking with the people that were involved, did you learn anything new ab- ab- about Salazar and, and did that change your opinion of him at all? Well, here's the thing. He wouldn't speak to me because he was in the middle of the court of arbitration for sport appealing his case and his legal team contacted me. I talked to his lawyer a couple times. I reached out to him. I wanted him to go on camera. It would have been a really interesting film if he had come on. But at the same time, I was able to do some things. Like if he's in the film, it, it changes. The film would have been a m- much different film. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, what did I learn? Like, I mean, I found out that he's got very close friends, like deep friendships. Uh, out in Portland, um, that Nike's relationship with them is so deep that even through all this, um, they backed him up until recently. I, they, I don't know what happened after he lost his final appeal. He just lost his final appeal like six days ago. Uh, so, well, I don't know what Nike's going to do. I don't know if he's on contract. Last time I contacted him, he still had a Nike email, so he seemed to be working with them. Um, and he's friends with Phil Knight. Like Phil Knight is a billionaire who just built the craziest stadium in track and field history in Oregon to host the world championships with his own money. No Nike money, just his own money. He paid $300 million. I mean, that's how wealthy that guy is. And and him and Alberta have known each other for 50 years almost, like since Alberta was a kid. Uh, so Phil Knight and him have a very close relationship. So I don't think Nike's ever going to drop that. Um, so I learned that I learned, um, I, I, I really, I didn't put this in the film, but I really learned about his, uh, his religious, um, underpinnings, which are, he's incredibly religious Catholic. Um, and how does that correspond? I, I, I wanted to get into this more. And if I had talked to him, I would have really gone in here is that his belief in God and the idea of cheating kind of don't quite mesh. <laughs> I would have liked to ask him that. Uh, but he was, he's, so I, I learned that about him. Um, I also learned that like a lot of his athletes just, just um, really did love him. And, but there was others who were scared of him. Like they just didn't know how to, con- like Cam Levins from Canada, just, he told me some great stuff. It didn't get in the film. But, like, he was, he was a bit, he was a bit intimidated by this guy and he didn't really know how to have a personal relationship with him. And although he had, he broke the Canadian record when he was there and ran some incredible times, he had some injuries and Nike treated them well. But so you, you like when you're ever, you're doing a film, um, you're doing long interviews with these people. So you're learning so much more like cams in the film for about four or five minutes, maybe at the tops, I think four minutes. So I probably interviewed him for two hours, you know, like, and you know spent time on the trails like filming them and and just learning a lot and i like those are the fun that's the fun part about making a film is like getting out there and talking to these guys and some people would say stuff off camera too and go i'm not going to talk about this on camera and but you know but there was no like to be honest i never heard anyone talk about oh alberto had syringes and uh you know and they were found in the bathroom and we all knew he had the syringe. like no one said things like that like uh, i didn't hear anything and that's why some people are mad at me about the film because i come out pretty on the fence about his like i still think i don't think he he's he got a, his banning was just um as long the, for the length of time he got he got four years banned that's a huge thing at the top and he had that really affected about 15 athletes, like world-class athletes. They had to scatter, find new coaches. A lot of them aren't doing as well. Um, a couple, one, one or two have done well though since then. So, um, but yeah, those are, those are the interesting parts of filming. You know, I remember watching uh, the Olympics, 
this year when, you know, Andre DeGrasse had all that success, Damien Warner, but, um, you know, even going back to Donovan Bailey, but the 100 meter sprint has always been called sort of the, you know, the, the feature of the Olympics or like, you know, the, 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 the big sort of the big, I guess, you know, uh, event. Marquee event. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the marquee event. And it, you know, it lasts for 10 seconds. Um, yeah. Why, why do you think that is? Why, why is the 100 meter specifically always such a marquee event? Well, because there's 6 billion people on earth and that person ends up being the fastest human on earth. So <laughs> it's like, there's nobody faster, no football player, no baseball player. I mean, it's like, they all say, oh, yeah, they can come over. They've tried it. Uh, what's his name? The fastest guy in the NFL uh, came over right. and raced. And he, and he came eighth in a local meet. Like, he ran fast. He ran 10.3. But Andre DeGrasse ran 9.74 this summer. And, nine, well, when they did, and he ran 9, 982, uh, 988 into a headwind. Like, holy shit. Like, like he's – the difference between the top football player – and those guys is so staggeringly huge that I don't think people, the average sports fan knows that. Like, and yeah, a few guys have been great uh, athletes between, but I think that just being the fastest man on earth is, or woman in earth is the, why that is, is like Usain Bolt. How many people have been on earth since the beginning of time? Like we've got 9 billion now, like another 6 billion probably add those in 15 billion. There's not one person on this earth who's been faster than Usain Bolt <laughs> so, ever in the history of this earth. <laughs> I, the other events. Yeah. I, I yeah. did. I did read one story from uh, a number of years ago where they, they found like this hundred and, you know, 50,000 year old, you know, um, skeleton of like an indigenous man. And, and they, they, they looked at his feet and then they tracked like, the how how large like how far his step like each individual step was and they said if he was alive today he could be just as fast as usain bolt but of course that's conjecture so you know like um and all but there might have been i mean there might have been fast people in the past we just didn't compete against it no but right usain bolt was just a free usain bolt is such a freak of nature and if that guy actually trained super hard he would have gone faster he wasn't the hardest trainer he even admits he was kind of lazy he didn't leave he didn't he liked going to mcdonald's and stuff. like that guy was a freak of nature like he was so good big six foot five with his turnover oh my god like and, and what, what what was his time not what's his what's the record time in 9.1 do you think we could ever see someone run the 100 in under nine seconds well that is that humanly possible not without technological uh <laughs> or drug help okay i mean people with a with a wind downhill yeah like I, <laughs> right, right. To do it. They, they've done i think justin gatlin ran under nine seconds on a downhill court like they put it on a downhill track right. like yeah. yeah like if you did that you're extending your stride you're not you know and you could probably do that physically but on a flat track no like i think I think we're getting close to the limit. Like, I mean, like this year, uh, DeGrasse just about won uh, the hundred, and he he was a full three tenths. Now, three tenths in a hundred is far. Go back and watch that race in two thousand eight when he does that. That it is staggering to watch that. Like, it's how far in front he is of of guys running nine seven. He's that far in front of him. He's got a good four meters on him. And uh, that's how fast he's generating. So I don't, I don't think so. I think, I think nine five maybe somebody could break nine five. Like there might be a freak of nature. Christian Coleman, uh, who got banned actually for missing drug tests. People haven't talked about that. Uh, he missed three drug tests. He's never been banned, but he, you're not allowed to miss drug tests. So he missed, and he was an idiot. He was at the mall for his last one and tried to get. Like, there's rules because we don't want people to cheat. So when they call you piss in the bottle and <laughs> show up right <laughs> but his times were actually significantly faster over 50 meters than bolts now bolts because his long legs he he tends to push faster yeah. at the end but but uh, coleman has been he's incredibly quick out over uh, 40 50 meters oh my gosh is he fast if he could hold that for a whole hundred he can't he never has been able to though so he could maybe get down to nine five the nine five so like 
with uh, with what DeGrasse did at the Olympics uh, this summer, with what Damien Warner did, you know, um, even going back, people like Donovan Bailey, uh, Perdita Felicien, what do you make of the state of Ontario athletics and athletics in Canada? I think it's I think it's great. Um, we've had, um, I mean, our marathon. I think we need to find a marathoner who can put poke his nose in there or her nose. I mean, Melinda Elmore came ninth at the Olympics. It's pretty good. Uh, she's 41 years old though. Uh, she's got a few more years, but we need to find a 23 year old, 24 year old who can run ninth and hopefully get up to the medal podium. Um, yeah, we've got our, I think we've got a good program. Like so we did as well as we have in, in many years, we've got a couple great high jumpers, um, Mike Mason and, and Warner's probably got another Olympics in him. And DeGrasse has definitely got the next Olympics is only three years away. Like the next four years, DeGrasse is going to be up there for a lot of these. Um, so that's great. And then Aaron Brown is just peaking forth at the Olympics. Like um, he's just behind and, you know, we don't, we don't talk about him, but he's been really good. So yeah, we've got a lot of kids coming up. Um, it's been good to see. We've got two of the best 5,000 meter runners. Um, from the GTA, uh, well, uh, one's from St. Catharines. There's a guy named Mo Ahmed. He got second in the 5,000 meters in the Olympics. That was an incredible race. Like, he's running against all the Kenyan, Ethiopian, the American guys, like, all the best guys, and he came second. Like, people, I don't know if people really reflect on how hard that is. <laughs> and his 5K was just incredible. And then we have a kid from Toronto. He went to St. Mike's. He... Uh, Justin Knight, and he's actually run faster. Well, no, he hasn't run faster, but he's he's run faster than Mohamed did at a younger age. And he made the finals, and I think he was sixth or seventh. So he didn't have a great race in the finals in the Olympics, but you know he's got a chance at a medal in the next couple of years. Like give him three years, we'll see. I'd like to see those guys moving up to the marathon. On it would be nice to see those guys like getting a marathon. Or I, I think that's where I feel like Canada is. A bit behind is in the marathon right now but um but i think on the track we're doing very well we've got good development programs i wish more kids would get into it versus soccer and other things um but it's a hard sport you get into it it's 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 like the training's hard you have to have the mentality for it um and it's also the the, the watch doesn't lie right uh, so you either you know at a young age if you're you've got any talent or not uh so i knew when i was 12 years old that I was pretty good and I didn't know if I would be good and then went to become a provincial champion and you know that sort of level at it when I was a high school kid but then even when I got up to the Olympic like trials levels it was just the difference between me being a provincial champion and the difference between an Olympian is so far it's like I just knew at age 22 I've trained so hard I'm not making the Olympics <laughs> right, right, right. it's it's just a brutal sport. Like, and I was, I'm a talent. I was a barely talented runner. I was a good university runner, like all that stuff. I ran, a, I ran the 800 meters and it was just, oh, it was so brutal when you just see these guys pull away and you, and you know, you probably trained harder than them. And you've got, so there is the just genetic gift as well. Like some people are just born with it. And I think we've got tons of kids in Canada that could be amazing. It's just, will they go into it? You know, uh, I hope so. I hope more. And um, given the fact that you're a filmmaker, what is your favorite running-based movie or, like, a movie about running? I actually thought 979 about Ben Johnson was probably the best documentary I've seen on sport. I thought it did a great job of not telling you that everybody in the race drugged, but basically telling you that everybody <laughs> in the race drugged. <laughs> I thought that was right. – you had to be very careful. I know – I know he actually had, I, I met him once and he, he had some evidence that he just couldn't be like, yeah, we, as filmmakers, we have to also not get sued. Um, we have to stay on the side of the journalistic rules. And so that's probably my favorite. Um, there's been some interesting docs, like by just some kind of low key filmmakers in the States. You get, you wouldn't hear about them, but they're, they're interesting. There's one going around about this, uh, running group in in Arizona, and they they are sponsored by Hoka, and they've been going out. and These these two guys went out and spent some time with them, and you get a sense, real sense of their journey of these. And these are people who are just just below Olympic level. They're just 
scratching to make the Olympics. And watching that uh, can be that that's pretty darn good. I like I like that stuff. So I'd say those 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 kind of films I like. And then Without What Limits, Prefontaine was my probably my favorite running movie of all time. That was with Jared Leto, um, and uh, is fantastic. Uh, like Prefontaine, as most people know, was he was the he was the image of Nike in the early 70s. Um, he was the number one runner in the world of the States uh, in the 5,000. And he came fourth at the Olympics. And they, um, Nike basically, him coming fourth was seen as a badge of honor. He went for the gold and he died. And, but he came fourth. And the Nike, that the whole just do it motto kind of comes from that is that's the kind of character Nike wants. And so that film without limits talks about it, but then he dies at age 23 or 24. He flipped his car and Eugene after her party and died in a sports car accident at age 24. He was like the superstar of sport and he was just gutsy as hell, like won all these national championships. No one wanted to race him because he was so tough. Like, <laughs> so I love that movie too. Uh, well, the 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 film uh, is now it's now out on CBC Gem, right? Yep. As of as of yep. Monday, right? Yep. It's uh, so the forty four minute edit of the film is on CBC. It'll be there for the next couple of years. It'll be up on CBC Gem. And if people want to see the eighty three minute, um, they're going to have to wait a bit. I'm now working to get that posted uh, with Apple, Google Play, Apple. Uh, you know, iTunes or um, all those sort of downloadable sites. But as a filmmaker, I, I usually do a deal in each country with a broadcaster. Um, I get just financially, it, it makes more sense to making the movie. Um, so I'm going to do that. But I think, I think real runner geeky people are people who are really into sports. The ESPN 30 for 30 guys watched it and they told me they really enjoyed it. And they said if Salazar had okayed it, they probably would have put it on. 30 for 30. So I had a good chat with those guys. So it's sort of like that. If you like 30 for 30s, uh, that's the kind of film it is. Um, and uh, I love those films. I like all of them. Like I don't, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what sport it is. <laughs> I love the drama and attention of taking a moment in sports history and, and weaving it into something. So I'm actually pitching them a new idea. I'll get back to you when I get it. It's not not in track, not in track and field though. It's a different sports. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm working on that right now. So we'll see well, where it, that goes. It <laughs> I got to sell. I got to sell it first. <laughs> well, the the film is Nike's big, Nike's big bet. Excuse me, Alberto Salazar and the Fine Line of Sport, which had its premiere back in May at Hot Docs and is now on CBC Gem. Paul Kemp, thanks so much for your time this afternoon. Thanks for having me, Dan. That was great. All right, well, you have a good day, and we uh, look forward to uh, whatever your next film uh, is that will come our way. Excellent. Well, it'll be, it might not be on sports, though. <laughs> <laughs> you stick to sports? You stick to sports? No, I, I, I do everything. I, I, I do generally, like, you know, film, music. Oh, okay. Like, and sort of just anything arts based you know like so but yeah, it's, yeah. I've, I've done documentaries like i've covered documentaries on pretty much anything a lot of indie films directors actors writers i've done books you know i've done novels yeah, I've yeah. Done memoirs i've done you know and Great. back in back in my radio station days i was doing a lot of like you know um social justice or like policies stuff like that oh yeah all all kinds yeah. of stuff well, yeah, I've got lots of films coming out. I got this, the one I'm talking about, that safe sport thing. I've got something going on that. So maybe in the spring, uh, okay. I think I'll be finishing it by February or March, maybe. So Okay, sweet. We'll see. Working on that now. So that's my next stage. Alrighty. Uh, and then I'm working, on, I'm working on some other stuff. I've got a big feature doc I'm trying to get off the ground right now. I've got a pretty good idea. It's on, yeah, it's, on, it's in, it's a weird cryptocurrency story. Um, yeah. Wow. It's, nice. yeah, it's in the, uh, you know, the wild west of, uh, yep, the wild west world right now. Ethereum, yeah. Bitcoin, yeah. and all that jazz. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I've, I'm pretty deep into the Bitcoin world. So, uh, yeah. I wish I owned more of it. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> we all. 
Okay. <laughs> well, if we owned a bit of it, we'd be very wealthy right now. <laughs> yep. yep. For sure. Alrighty, man. Well, you have Talk a good day. Take care. And once again, that was my interview with Paul Kemp. His new documentary, Nike's Big Bet, is out now. Thanks for tuning in. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon Music, Deezer, Pandora, and a whole, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Endeavors Radio. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Goodbye for now. Oh,